We are absolutely in the golden age of innovation. And there is no question, I've never in my lifetime seen so much going on from a tech standpoint across every industry. Um, you know, a lot of these macro trends are either industry wide. So like AI is not a tech specific catalyst. I mean, that's going to affect every industry. Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, managing partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. This week, I chat with Divya Narendra, co-founder and CEO of SumZero. Now, for those who don't know, SumZero is an investment community where peer-reviewed professional investment research, so serious investment research, is shared amongst its members. Their network of top analysts in the asset management industry is growing rapidly, and they offer a lot of extraordinary insights. So if you are interested in public equities, definitely check it out. In addition to SumZero, Divya also sits on the board of Gemini, one of the leading crypto exchanges. So we go down that crypto rabbit hole for a bit. And before his career, Divya attended Harvard, where he became friends with the Winklevoss twins. So if you've seen the movie The Social Network, Divya is the third co-founder of ConnectU. Divya tells us all about crashing the set of The Social Network when they were filming the movie, actually. Pretty interesting. Uh, he's a great sport, and it was a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Thunder. Thunder is a platform that is democratizing access to capital. The company believes fundraising should be about who you are and what you've built, not just about who you know. Founders can create a free account and add their company information, and then match with relevant investors. Investors can create free profiles and provide their investment criteria, ensuring that they only receive relevant deal flow. By utilizing a double opt-in matching protocol, Thunder avoids the spam, only connecting investors and entrepreneurs that should be introduced. Visit thunder.vc to create your free account while the company is in beta. Divya, thank you for being here, buddy. Thanks for having me, Mark. Awesome. Uh, let's start off. Would you give an overview of SumZero? Sure, yeah. So SumZero is an online community, um, you know, a la LinkedIn or Facebook, but it targets investment professionals. So uh, we have about 20,000 members globally, um, and, and these are pretty much exclusively analysts and portfolio managers who work at um, either mutual funds or hedge funds or other types of uh, asset managers. And they use the site for a couple different reasons, um, but the, the core use case is to share research. So um, before some zero, if you wanted fundamentally driven investment research, you would typically have gone to Wall Street. So you would have gone to Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan Equity Research or UBS or one of those firms. Um, and, and the problem with that research, traditional Wall Street research, is that the analysts who produce that research, A, have no skin in the game, and B, they have significant conflicts of interest because most of those firms also have investment banking divisions that prospect you know, public and private companies for um, investment banking business, which is typically, you know, fundraising of some sort or another. And so if you want unconflicted research coming from analysts who do have skin in the game, uh, who are also professionals, you have to somehow know somebody at a fund, say a Tiger Global or, you know, maybe a Fidelity or, or a firm like that. But, you know, before some zero that those folks weren't sharing research online. So, you know, I, st I set out to create some zero to give 
professional investors a venue um, and incentives to share their inner thoughts on publicly traded companies, um, you know, online. And and over the years, we've grown some zero um, to offer a number of ancillary services as well. Uh, you know, for example, we'll help analysts on the platform with recruiting. We'll help them um, with with capital raising needs as well. Um, and we've also opened up this research to individual investors like like your parents or yourself, um, you know, folks who are not necessarily working at funds, but just want deeper insights into the markets. They can actually subscribe for access to some zero. There are three different tiers, depending upon what your budget is. Um, but anyway, we've started to kind of un unleash access to individual investors. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's an investment community. You can almost think of us as like, uh, you know, almost a higher octane version of say a Reddit or, um, uh, you know, a seeking alpha, something of that oh. sort. So are, is, is a lot of the, is, is a lot of it kind of people posting research they've done, or is it a conversational environment, people chatting with each other? It's, it's, it's research they've done. So the typical piece of research is a few thousand words long mm -hmm. and it it's going to contain you know, a pretty deep discussion or on valuation, um, which is to say, not just like, what does a company do, but what's it actually worth and why? So that might involve a discounted cash flow analysis that might involve looking at, 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 um, comparables, um, that might involve doing a, some of the parts analysis if a business happens to have multiple divisions. Um, it, it's also going to involve looking at catalysts that will, you know, drive share price, you know, up or down, depending on whether that analyst is long or short the name. Um, but it's all fundamental and, um, you know, it's, it's meant to be thorough. It's not a tweet per se, right. or just, uh, you know, like an off the cuff set of remarks. These, these are, these are, um, people who are putting, you know, a lot of analysis, uh, to what they're saying. Uh, and they actually, uh, you know, they're putting their money where their mouth is. They're often invested in what they're talking about. And their name is associated with these posts. So it's not anonymized. So if you post something on some zero that's, let's say, lower quality, your own reputation is at risk and you'll probably get a low rating for that idea. So Divya, why did, why did the investors share their research? What's the motivation? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go through it. So multiple reasons. One is they're, they're talking about names they have a position in already. So um, you know, if you own a stock, let's say it's Blackstone, you want as many people in the markets to know why you own it and why you think it's undervalued. Because if they agree and they go buy up the shares, the stock might actually go up. Now, with a large cap name like Blackstone, um, it's 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 hard to move markets. But you can imagine with smaller cap names, you know, if you think back to like GameStop, uh, for example, last year, which um, where there was a big short squeeze, um, those names can can move more easily if you're able to to, to generate some consensus. But I think that, I think the, the bigger point is like you know if you if you have insights that people don't have and and, and you can share those insights, um, you know you can actually have a significant impact on on a given stock. It might take some time, but that's sort of how it works. And and we find that like the best quality content floats to the top somehow you know it'll tend to get the most views it'll tend to get the most rankings it'll tend to um generate the most discussion um and that's what we're trying to do is like really bring deep dive research and like higher level thoughts to the forefront and cut through a lot of the noise that you otherwise see and hear if you rely solely on like traditional media Are there any perverse incentives in that i mean i see some of the 
big hedge funders on CNBC and other channels all the time uh, pushing their book. We want people to push their book. That's the whole point of, of, of um, you know, I think sharing your research. Now, the thing is, because our community is sophisticated, um, you know, people are skeptical by nature. And so the, the, the analysts who push their book for the sake of pushing their book, but are making bad arguments, those pieces of research tend to not, you know, A, they don't typically perform that well, but B, they, they don't get great feedback. And so um, mm. it's, it's risky reputationally to push your book. And that's why we run a very transparent platform. So your name, your firm name, um, you know, your entire profile is associated with everything you post. And so if you're going to post something mediocre, uh, it's probably not going to bode well for your reputation. In addition, we screen the ideas before they get published on the platform. So if somebody huh. is posting something that's subpar, where they're missing, you know, significant detail around core components of their thesis, like valuation being one, risks being another, um, we actually won't let that content uh, display on the platform at all. So it's it's a much more curated experience when you're on some zero. Um, a, a, you have to apply to even be part of the community if you want to be a contributor. So all our contributors are vetted. Um, but B, once they're once they're accepted into the community, you know, we we then vet out any submissions that they post. And how much content is coming through the site? Is it a couple strategies yeah, a day? Like how much research is It's, it's typically um, you know it's it's. You know, it could be a few ideas a day, it might be a dozen, but, um, you know, over the course of the year, you'll see a thousand pieces of research get posted on the platform. That said, it's not a volume mm. play. It's really much more about the quality of the content, not not so much the volume. Um, but the key thing is that any one idea, like I think as an analyst if, or as an investor, if you're, um, you know, if you can like learn something even once a year, uh, that's actually a pretty big deal because you might gain conviction on a particular company that you didn't otherwise have. And that could be the basis of your, you know, that could be the, 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 the basis of a large position that you, you put on in a given year or, or maybe in a, in a given quarter. Um, you know, most great investors don't have massively diversified portfolios. Like they typically, um, invest in, in fairly concentrated um, positions where they do a lot of homework around a given situation and they just understand it inside and out. And, you know, that's typically what's driving the returns. It's not, it's not buying a hundred stocks over the course of a year. Right. If you, if that was your right. strategy, you would, you would just index through an ETF and be done with it. Right. Have you tracked the performance of the research more or less? Yeah. We've been doing a lot more quantitative analysis of the returns on the platform. Um, and we've actually recently, you'll find this interesting. Um, we partnered with a couple ex-Millennium guys who are former data scientists from Millennium, uh, which is a very large hedge fund based in New York and Connecticut. Uh, they've helped us leverage um, AI tools to create a model that takes some zero ideas as an input and um, you know, layers onto that, something like a hundred factors. So some of those factors are fundamental in nature, things like free cash flow yield. Some of those factors are momentum based. Um, but the output of this model is basically a subset of the sums your idea database. And we've created four different portfolios. Mm. So there's, there's a global basket. There's a, you know, there's a tech basket. There's a small and mid cap basket. And um, all of these models have outperformed the S&P 500 over a 10 year period, which I think is really interesting. And we've even more recently 
started to invest a small portion of some zero zone balance sheet into this um you know this ai driven model uh and we've been talking to more firms both quantitatively driven and also just kind of traditional fundamental firms about leveraging uh some of this modeling to to kind of help them screen within the sum zero database because there you know there are thousands of ideas on the platform it's 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 hard to figure out you know which ones to focus on um but some of these quant screens are one way to do it so is there a way to buy into these funds you've created are these publicly available at this point? Not or? right now. Um, not right now, but but it's it's on our radar. Interesting. Uh, you know, we we've seen a lot of in, in the sort of fintech world. There's there's been a a lot of um, spotlight around robo advisors and other kinds of like like investment vehicle alternatives, um, alternatives to hedge funds and mutual funds. And my view on on a lot of these models is they. They are cheaper than going to Goldman Sachs's private wealth management group, for sure. Like if you were fortunate enough to have the funds to qualify to be a Goldman private banking client, you know, they would take your money and then they would charge you what they call a wrapper fee, which is typically around 1%. Maybe it's less than 1%, but it's a pretty big number. So you imagine if you have a portfolio that returns 10% in a given year, Goldman's going to charge you 10% of your returns. And what are they doing with that money? They're typically putting it in you know, a basket of mutual funds and splitting it between equities and bonds. And that's basically it. They're not picking stocks for you. They're not even making the claim that they're going to outperform the markets. Right. Um, and so what I always tell people is like, look, like if you don't want to do your homework, you can always just go buy a Vanguard ETF, pay virtually zero fees. And most likely you will outperform almost every, you know, wealth advisor. And so these robo-advisors, they do the exact same thing, but they do it at a lower fee, but not as low a fee as you could achieve just by buying a Vanguard ETF, right? right. <laughs> or buying right. a BlackRock ETF. So for, for me, I was always like, I, you know, like if you just want to diversify, then all you have to do is buy like one ticker, VOO, right? Which is the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF. You could just own that and never own anything else. And you'd, do great. And you'd be fine. Yeah. You'd do fine. Or you could own the BlackRock equivalent. And I, I think that's just SPY, right? So, but that said, if you want to outperform the markets, then you need a more active strategy. And um, so one thing that we'd like to do is, you know, allow people to essentially leverage this like deep dive hedge fund research without having to pay the fees that are typically associated with investing in a hedge fund, which tend to be pretty high, like two and 20, one and 10, whatever it might be. Um, and that's something that's on our radar. In the meantime, if you're, if you're just a stock person, you love equities, or maybe you like crypto, and you just want to know what, what is the story behind how, you know, Ethereum is valued or, or how, you know, um, you know, how, how do I think about Google from a, from a valuation standpoint? All that research is on some zero and you can read it and it's it's incredibly educational and, and really insightful. And I've personally availed myself of it because I'm, you know, I run the site, but you know, even for my own portfolio, there are a number of situations where, you know, I really learned a lot about not only a stock, but a given industry through the research on the platform where it's helped me actually generate longer term returns. Because I'm not a day trader. I don't, you know, and I don't think really most people on some zero do any of that. It really is more of a long-term investing community. Mm -hmm. If that's something you care about and you're interested in compounding your wealth over a longer period of time, um, you need to have an understanding of 
a deep understanding of the companies you're investing in, the industries they operate in, what the competitive forces are. And that's exactly the kind of content you learn, you know, what you gain from being on SubZero. I've come to realize, talking to all the private wealth advisors and the folks on Wall Street, that uh, wealth protection is a commodity. It's a gimmick that they sell against. It's a total, it's a total commodity. And um, a lot of people are too lazy to understand that. Yeah. And what they're ultimately paying for is a brand and they're paying for, you know, U.S. Open tickets every every summer, whatever. I mean, like, so, you know, if you happen to be of that ilk where you've made a bunch of money right. and you're lucky enough where J.P. Morgan cares about you from the standpoint of private banking, you just have to understand that you're 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 not going to you're not going to beat the markets like you're most likely going to underperform the markets. Yeah, net fees be, almost for sure. Yeah. So but but you will get a certain degree of service if that's what you, if, you know, if that's what you want. Um, but I think most people given the choice would rather either reduce that fee or really go after um, uh, you know, a more concentrated portfolio uh, where there's a lot of thought put into the names. It's not just like, oh, let's buy 500 stocks. Right. Now you've been focusing on uh, public equities and the hedge fund world obviously overlays with that. It feels very much as a VC, like we are in the golden era of venture. This is our decade. Maybe it's been our decade for a little while. I, I think it's been that way ever since I graduated college in 2004. Okay. Um, I mean, when I was in college, uh, there were like, nobody was trying to become an entrepreneur. You know, you know like uh, most kids were just, I want to go into investment banking or I want to go work at McKinsey. Right. And that was it. Same. Um, now, you know, ever since, I mean, really ever since <laughs> I finished college, um, there's been an explosion of VC funding because you've had, you know, you've had the Facebooks and the Fangs and like all these companies explode, which has had sort of downstream impact on just, I think, people's willingness to fund crazy ideas. <laughs> um, you've had a very low rate environment, um, which has also helped create um, a lot of, uh, let's say, bolder risk taking on the part of, um, you know, institutional investors out there. And, um, you know, now, like, no matter how old you are, like, if you've got an idea there's there there are multiple vcs willing to have a meeting and and see if it makes sense and and potentially invest in in your in your idea um so it's a pretty exciting time um now we're sort of it's funny you mentioned we're in the golden age that's definitely been true but this is the first time since at least i was 22 that suddenly people are talking about rates going up which um mm -hmm. you know will certainly have an impact on vc you know, it has an impact on every asset class. For sure. So will VCs going forward be as aggressive? Probably not. But if you zoom out, rates are still pretty low. So I think it, it I think it, there'd be they'd have to go up quite a bit um for the venture capital community to just like suddenly contract. Plus, you know, most of these VCs have pretty long-term commitments. So it's not like they're as susceptible to like short-term rate changes as as maybe other asset managers might be. Yeah, I feel like the major correlation that the venture community experiences with overall market trends is the denominator effect. When the bottom falls out of the market, uh, VCs are suddenly overvalued in the portfolios of large endowments. And so the upstream supply of capital to VCs dwindles. And that usually leads to VCs investing a little more slowly. We're seeing a similar version of it today, but for different reason. Uh, you know, there were so many companies that hadn't IPO'd in the last 10 years, and now all of that is launched into the market. 
Not all of it's liquid. All the companies are getting marked up in people's portfolios. And you, a lot of the endowments are now over allocated to venture, not because the other asset classes dipped, but because VC is outperformed. So, outperformed. yeah, so materially. So it's an interesting moment. There are, there are fewer LPs um, of the traditional LPs who can write checks into VC right now. But I think the trend we're seeing is a lot of the other in- endowments, institutions that weren't on the VC game, didn't have their alternative asset strategy sorted out, are now waking up and realizing, whoa, you know, these are big numbers. We should be. Uh, what I will say, what I will say is that we are absolutely in the golden age of innovation. Yeah. And there is no question. I've never in my lifetime seen so much going on from a tech standpoint across every industry. Um, you know, a lot of these macro trends are they're industry wide. So like AI is not a tech specific catalyst. I mean, that's going to affect every industry. Yeah. Um, AI is just you, next you know, gen software. Through, software. It's everywhere. Yeah. Like, you, you know, you think about blockchain tech, like that's a pretty broad swath of, I mean, like so many different companies will get affected by that. Obviously the financial community will, it will and, and is being affected, you know, kind of first, but a lot of these trends are just massive and they're all happening at the same time. And uh, it just seems like every other day, there, every every next day, there's there's another, you know, like, you know, I remember when like Mark did that whole thing, Mark Zuckerberg did that whole thing on metaverse. Like nobody was talking about metaverse. And then one day everyone was talking about metaverse. Right. And And now they're talking about it in the context of it potentially being um, of greater economic c- capacity as the real economy. So like, you know, if you go through like electrification, you know, the revolution of like the energy and infrastructure in the United States, CRISPR technology, blockchain technology, metaverse, it's like there's so many things that are happening all at once that it's, it's virtually impossible to keep track of. Yeah. And, you know, the question is, does it ever slow down or are we just in the knee of the curve and it's going to continue accelerating? I think we're in the first inning of most of these trends. Like if you think about blockchain, I mean, I, I've been on the board of Gemini for what you're like 10 years. I don't know. There, uh, it still feels like we're in the top of the first inning. Yeah. Because when I, when I think about the industry and you have, you know, I don't know, 10,000 different blockchain protocols, many of which will go to zero and probably should go to zero. Um, but even the ones that have promise, are so early in delivering on that promise that it kind of gets you excited and nervous at the same time. Um, so yeah, I, I I think we're just beginning. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> I don't know. What by the way, it's hard to figure out that you're on the board of Gemini. I think I knew that we had talked about it before, but I couldn't find it anywhere on the web. Is that a secret? You know what? I haven't touched my LinkedIn profile in like ten years. Classic so hedge that's... fun guy. Right, like that's part of it, yeah. <laughs> um, but but no, I mean, I I remember back in the days, like when the guys were talking to me about what they wanted to do with Gemini. I was like, this sounds cool. And when you say the guys, um, you mean the Winklevoss twins? Yeah, yeah, like you know, and and full disclosure, they're they're um, you know our largest investors at Sum Zero. Right. Um, but you know, they they were like obviously personally very invested in Bitcoin. At the time they owned, like there was a New York Times article that came out that they owned 1% of all outstanding Bitcoin. I was like, you know, this is, I was pretty skeptical at that time. Um, and through the last couple cycles, they, they've managed to like weather all of those troughs where, you know, the markets kind of 
pull the rug out from underneath and 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 you just you know you have people selling the stuff at will um and they've self-funded the whole operation which is like a whole other story um pretty incredible but you know like even through the the last 10 years um if you look at what has happened uh, in terms of uh defi the nft marketplace just a general i think institutional acceptance of like the concept of 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 crypto not, not so much a specific coin per se but just the idea that hey this is a legitimate asset class that needs to be nurtured um that happened in a really short time uh and 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 even now it's you know it's a small fraction of uh of the other kind of more established asset classes so like you think about what's the runway there i mean it's it's massive you know and so what the winners are going to be is a whole different debate but um anyway it's just another example of the rate of progress that we're seeing you you, you interestingly sit between kind of what's traditionally an old guard mindset and then in in the hedge fund world old guard mm-hmm. finance and then with gemini you're on the frontier. When I go to family office conversations or uh, meet a bunch of you know head fund folks, there are people who have adopted, who have said, "Hey, crypto's a thing. We're going to start playing. We're going to we're going to trade this." There's a lot of people who still give you the eye roll. Where what have you taken away from the sum zero community? Is there are most people kind of moving in the direction of crypto, or what's happening? What's There's the definitely. We're, first of all, we're seeing content on the platform covering crypto, which is itself noteworthy uh, I mean, when did the that fact start that people is that new a couple years ago i mean I, I i first posted about ethereum in 2018 i think mm-hmm. it was and then the twins actually posted about bitcoin um a year or two ago on the platform um but there have been other guys there have been a couple of folks who've written about solana there have been pieces on on basic attention token there was a guy who wrote a piece on the DeFi pulse index if you wanted sort of a di- diversified play into DeFi, so people have talked about it I think what I'm sort of seeing as the inflection point is is more like developing real use cases out of this stuff for like real people right. and moving away from just like this is an asset class for pure speculation. I think when people roll their eyes about crypto, I mean, they're rolling their eyes about the general idea that someone could create um, a token out of thin air. That doesn't actually solve any real problem or doesn't really do anything for anyone but but serves as a pure speculative tool and for vcs like yourself you know you're used to kind of investing in things that do stuff and solve problems Mm -hmm. so i think even within the vc community there's a lot of skepticism about crypto because a lot of this stuff is like a white paper and a promise but zero execution or like very little execution on future utility you're betting on future utility but like it's hard because a lot of this stuff requires a certain degree of network effects. Mm -hmm. And, and so for example, like the promise of a decentralized world requires a lot of things to happen, right? It's not just having this protocol, but it's having like people build on top of it and and people using, you know, building apps on top of it. So when I, when I remember when I wrote about Ethereum in 2017, 2018, um, this was like right before the first crypto winter. And my entire thesis was on, hey, like this is not just a token. Like this isn't just like a a virtual toy that you just trade around with your friends. 
but like this isn't this is like an online this is an operating system it's a foundation mm -hmm. for a future that could be boundless in terms of what people might do on it but at the time there was no DeFi, right there was no use case and it was literally just this promise um now luckily for ethereum after it crashed 90 percent um somebody came up you know with like this the idea of lending in a decentralized manner and so, so things like ave picked up and some of these you know erc20 tokens that support lending kind of sprouted up and then people were like oh whoa wait a second this is massively disruptive to the like traditional banking sector right. what's that actually worth well let's try to figure out you know like how the, the the you know how do you value the banking system well there are a bunch of publicly traded companies in the space what are their market caps let's add them up um you know what are the frictions that can be kind of removed out of the system um and you know so anyway it became much much more tangible and then of course it you know 50x from there you know right. uh the way but to run. i i think i think that's what people roll their eyes so they, they they don't they don't see the use case and i think bitcoin to this day like has that problem where because it's marketed it as digital gold or a store of value it doesn't really do anything else it sort of has anointed itself as a store of value a lot of people still struggle with it um but there are many other blockchains that that have a very specific um let's say uh use cases that that are a little bit more tangible and so you know i think for people who are macro oriented who who like invest in gold like for them bitcoin is a little bit more tangible for people who don't invest in gold like let's say you're a vc person and you're used to investing in small companies and equities like you probably own some layer one protocols as as uh, a small part of your own portfolio we had chris yeh on i don't know if you know him he's the co-author of blitz scaling and a few other books uh he, he wrote those books with reed hoffman who's obviously a big name okay well, i know reed i don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know, know chris, chris but and, yeah. and so chris is um, uh, a vc and his comment on crypto when we talked about this was to be skeptical, not dismissive. And I think the underlying point he was trying to make was that any new emerging technology that kind of has like a gold rush feel to it, there's always charlatans, but there's real opportunities. Where do you see mm -hmm. the real plays here? Well, I think you got to get to know the teams behind the protocols. Um, there's obviously the the sort of scope, but I, I think his I think his 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 uh, characterization is exactly right. Um, my personal view is like most of this stuff is, uh, you know, there are a lot of charlatans in this space, um, and and it's un it's unfortunate because, you know, when you look at coin market cap and you and you just go through the list of all of the different projects, right. the fact that like a like that there's so many, like no name projects that have no adoption whatsoever, and yet have market caps well in excess of a hundred million dollars speculation like makes no sense right and unfortunately that uh let's say financial energy that's locked up in all of these bogus uh, you know these bogus projects is taking away um uh, let's say commitment and adoption from the the projects that actually do make sense um and and have you know like a real engineering community behind them um with real leadership uh and growing network effects so actually just recently um one of my um one of my good friends who runs a uh he, he does a lot of crypto investing and he's a former private equity guy he sent me this chart of it was like 
basically tracking um, the number of engineers developing on you know all these different good, platforms good against yeah. against like the price of or the value of of those of each of those different protocols. And there were a couple that stood out. So um, ICP stood out, the Internet Computer. Um, I think Algorand was pretty was a pretty interesting um, one on that on that list, um, and a couple others that aren't super well known, but have like a lot of actual activity from the standpoint of engineers, um, but aren't necessarily mainstream and actually are far from mainstream. Is the chart public? So if, if yes, we'll link to it. Yeah, in the I, can, I can I can I can find it for yeah. you. I, he actually texted it to me. I can send that okay, to you. But perfect. I think it's really interesting. Awesome. Um, now you've uh, you've been known for. Let me say this way: you've actually maintained a pretty low profile, right? I think you probably yeah. do that intentionally. <laughs> I mean, you haven't updated your LinkedIn, uh, and I'm I'm sure it's not in any small part due to kind of the origins of your business career, right? Um, it's it's also just my personality. Like I'm I'm not a very showboaty kind of guy. I like that. <laughs> uh, um, I, I think it's easier to to sort of just go about my day and focus on my day job. <laughs> so for those who don't know you by name, uh, you have been in a movie, right? There was the social network for, I'm sure everyone's seen at this point, you've mentioned the Winklevoss twins already. You were basically on the Connect You team. It was you and the Winklevoss twins who had started that. So first question for you on this topic, there was an actor who played you. And I've never had this happen to me, so I got to hear the the other side of it. A guy named Max Minghella. I had to look him up because I didn't know who played it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he's now famously in the Hand, Handmaid's Tale, which is a pretty big show. How was that? How mm-hmm. did he do? Well, um, I had no like role. I had no um, input into how the film was produced, written, or you know, anything to that effect, or in the casting. Um, I thought it was peculiar that they chose a half British, half Chinese guy to play me <laughs> who they then decided to brownface. Um, huh. So he actually, I think in the film may have been like more tan than I am <laughs> in real life. But um, he also like, look, I thought the film was really entertaining. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think his portrayal of me was um, inaccurate in the sense that it made me seem out to be like, this uh somewhat dark and brooding person mm. this not is your just personality. A personality it's not really like yeah, yeah. like I, i'm i'm pretty easy going yeah. so but not that that doesn't really matter as far as the you know the, the narrative or the you know like it doesn't really change the the uh the story much but so that you know they never met me so they didn't really know what um i was like personally but i i guess i was sort of in the movie this like um this 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 agitator a little bit of a whip to get the twins to go like you know uh sopranos on mark on on, on zuckerberg which is i think uh one of the uh it was kind of a quote from 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 the movie itself uh, he, he's a good dude i mean he he was we we did meet once um they were actually there was one scene where uh cameron and tyler are at henley at, at the royal regatta and um so they told me that they were going to film a scene there. So I, we actually flew out there because it was held during Henley. Huh. So they were filming so you, during you knew Henley. They would be there. Which, it would have been easy to find. Yeah. And, 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 you know, like the twins had rode at Henley numerous times before. And it's, it's like if you're a rower, it's, it's like the event of the year. You know, you, you, you want to go. It's just a great, great, great sporting event, great party. Tons of people from around the world show up. Um, 
lots of fanfare, very British. There's nothing more British than Henley. It's, it feels more British than even Wimbledon. But anyway, um, so I met him. I met Army Hammer. I met uh, Josh, the guy who played Tyler, who was CGI'd as Army Hammer. Uh, and, and a couple of other, other folks. And, and it was fun. I mean, there was, it, you know, it, it was clear at the time, this is like a once in a lifetime sort of experience to just kind of soak it in. And then, you know, yeah, that's an interesting on. moment. The, um, actually came up to him and, and said hello with that, with a really heavy Indian accent. To throw him <laughs> off and, he figured it yeah, out. He, just figured it out. <laughs> he, he wasn't trying to yeah. replicate that for the movie. No, <laughs> that's awesome. Now, I know that your take and kind of the perception of what happened in the movie uh, is well articulated on Wikipedia. We're not going to cover that. For folks who are interested, they can go read. You have your own Wikipedia page. It's on there. And I, I'm sure you didn't write that, but it's kind of spelled out. No, the story. Yeah. Um, how accurate is the movie? I mean, it's pretty accurate. Like, it, there's a lot of dramatic flair. They, they do get some things wrong. Like, you know, the scene with, with uh, for example, Larry Summers. Um, I was actually there in person, but I wasn't there in the movie. There are things like that that I think are somewhat immaterial. Um, I, I think some of the differences culturally between like their side and our side were were magnified or amplified. Um, so like I think somebody seeing the film without ever having met, say, Cameron and Tyler or myself would think, oh, these guys are a bunch of dumb jocks. Right. Um, Far and, from oh, it. Mar like, or like Divya is just like, whatever, like this. I don't even know, like this preppy dude who like, they always, they put me in a sweater and a, and a collared shirt <laughs> in every scene, which, and I think the reason is that there was one photo of me online taken by some journalist from the Mokler courthouse. It was like after some evidentiary hearing that I had to go to where I was just happy to be wearing like a blue cashmere sweater with, with like a collared shirt. And that became like, it was on Google. So then they decided that right. that was going to be my look throughout the film. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, like, I think some of these cultural differences were a little bit um, exaggerated and a little silly, but, uh, you know, that's, I guess, there for dramatic effect. I, look, I, my personal view is that the truth is always more interesting, mm. um, but I get for Hollywood why, you know, putting people in a box is more interesting. It, it creates a little bit more of a clear, you know, this guy versus that guy, good guy versus bad guy, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but obviously in reality, things are a little bit more subtle. Yeah, when they, you know, I appreciate what they do in movies now, especially with these epic long journeys through multi-season shows becoming so commonplace. It's hard to tell a whole story and do character development in two hours. I've stopped watching movies. Right. And, and I, it, yeah, I mean, ever since um, we are speaking of golden ages, we were absolutely in the golden age of television. I mean, between Fantastic. like, Breaking Bad, Game of what Thrones, are you whatever. Now? I mean, whatever. You're what are you watching? Uh, right now, I've basically been just knee deep in like dealing with uh, my toddler and newborn. So uh, I'm sort of stop watching. That's tough. <laughs> I've been meaning to watch the third season of um, Succession. Um, th that's just a hysterical show for anybody who's like yeah. lived in New York <laughs> and may have uh, you know met one of these characters. Right. I mean, it's pretty fun. It's like it's like five completely psychotic people who also happen to be billionaires right. trying to, you know, pull strings in New York. I mean, it, it really, really funny show. Um, I'm binge watching but, Narcos season three right now. Narcos Mexico. It's awesome. See, I never even made it through the first oh, season. Highly recommend. But, but I'm a little bit of a history a nerd, so I love learning about what was happening in the background. 
Um, so l- let me let me turn direct change change the table here a little bit. Um, I met you about a dozen years ago at this point, and when you were introduced to me, you were introduced. Uh, you know, I don't think this was said to your face, but this is how you were pre-wired that you were the the third guy in the Connect You team. Mm-hmm. And we sat down. I remember you came to my office just for a meet and greet, and you were busy doing your JD MBA at Kellogg, and you were a starving student. And what I took away from this meeting was this fascinating dichotomy of realities where I, I remember you feeling a lot of, maybe I misperceived it, but I, remember, I don't remember exactly what we talked about, but coming away thinking you were very stressed about money because you had your uh, student loans coming up and you, know, you probably hadn't earned an income in a while. And there was very much this feeling of you know, the normal pressures that I think everyone feels. And I left the meeting. And I was like, doesn't this guy have Facebook stock? And aren't they going public? And, and they, sure enough, they went public a year later. What I saw then, and I have seen many times since, is that a lot of people uh, have trouble internalizing paper wealth until it has been somewhat liquidated. And then their life really changes. And I'm in the venture game which is famous for people getting rich slowly. That's the phrase VCs use. So I know a lot of VCs who have material ownership of companies that haven't gone public yet, but when they do, they're going to make tens of millions of dollars, life-changing money. How does that psychological narrative resonate with you? Is that the pattern you saw and have seen? Is this a thing? Um, you know, I was never like worried about money per se, only because I never really had aspirations of becoming rich like that was never and i and it, like my parents were doctors so but we lived in a pretty middle class part of queens um i grew up in bayside queens which nice. is like close to long island but sort of th- still in the city um i always aspired to have independence fun- you know financial independence but um i never really i mean growing up i i, I kind of imagined that i'd become a doctor and then i got to college and then i realized like Oh, I, I don't think I'm I'm the right fit for that. Um, and I sort of stumbled on entrepreneurship, and it hit me that you know entrepreneurship was like you know a, a field where I could bring together multiple aspects of my personality and skill set to the table, um, and and you know make that kind of my life. And 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 so that got me excited, along with the impact. You know, like. Right. Just the, the the opportunity to do, do something innovative is like I just think a real privilege because most people, you know, most people have a job, and then some hate. subset of those, which they don't like. Some subset of those people have a career, and and then a lot of those people also don't like their careers, and then and then there's a, a smaller, I think, a very small subset of people who have a job that is their passion, and and so I think that prospect got me excited at a young age. And I was lucky to have that experience in college, you know, where you have a lot of room to take risk and not have to worry about what happens if you screw up because there's time. You just have a lot of time at that, right. you know, relative to when you were 40 or something like that. So, um, but I think because I, I grew up in a, you know, in fairly modest um, surroundings and, and was frankly never exposed to wealth. Like I didn't, I didn't have friends who went to private schools in New York city or anything like that. Like, you know, I didn't really know what that world was. Um, and then I think when I started school or graduate school, when we may have met, uh, 
you know, because I was doing this dual degree, I was also under the gun from the standpoint of just academics, yeah. you know, and I was trying to, trying to balance like the desire to start this, this business sum zero with, with all the academic obligations I had. So, so re- really it was that, um, I, I think, I think most people though, who let's say grew up under normal, normal circumstances don't internalize wealth until far later because you can't reverse decades of of like of living and and whatever your lifestyle is up until that point um just because you gained some degree of paper wealth yeah right like it's 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 just it's very it'd be very unnatural like to oh i I've got ten million dollars in paper wealth. I'm going to go buy myself a, a G wagon tomorrow. And like nobody does that because they a they know it, it how much it takes to get there, but b they have years of programming in their brain that like no like it's better to be like modest and to be um you, you know to to know that like it is paper wealth. It might go away. It might disappear. Right. <laughs> it's not like, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a sure thing. Um, so I have friends who are self-made though, who have gone down that path, looked at their money, have found it more or less, probably some degree of meaningless. It doesn't give people what they think it's going to give them and have bought the fancy cars and all that. But it's funny. It feels like they're twisting their own arm for a lot of folks. It's not the natural inclination, even if they can. It just feels like it feels like they're you know, supposed it's, to. Yeah, I mean, to me, honestly, it, it, it that would feel not only irresponsible, but I would I would be embarrassed. Mm-hmm. It's like you have to, you still have to show your face to your family and your friend, and right. like they would look at you and they'd be like, "Who are you?" And and I think um, that's a weird transition. And and I don't personally ever want to put myself in a position where I'm like embarrassed to like have people over my house because of some weird, you know, material thing that I've, you know, purchased or whatever. Like, I, I don't want to be that dude driving a Lamborghini. It's just never been good instincts. It's just never been something I've wanted. Um, and there's no amount of wealth that's going to change that. Um, you know, and, but I do think that like, it, you know, it's, there's a balance. Like if you're given, you know, if you're fortunate and you have the, you know, like you have that flexibility, Oh, now I've got, you know, some degree of wealth, like it's really like you become a capital allocator in a way that maybe you didn't realize when you, when you didn't have that money. And then it's like, okay, what do I do with this wealth? You know, like, do I start another business? Do I um, just invest in, in other entrepreneurs? Do I do both? Um, you, you know, do I just pursue certain passions that I maybe didn't have the, the, the ability to pursue before? Like, and I think those are all healthy things to do. And um, it does take time to to think through, like, okay, I've sort of made it at least on paper. You know, what's next? But I think most people who are self made don't ever want to slow down. At least, not as you know, in their thirties and forties, and you know, even their fifties. Like, they're 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 young enough where they have the energy to want to kind of keep building. And it's just a question of what. My freshman year in college, we had to take a mandatory English class, a writing class. And the content we happened to study stuck with me. It was Andrew Carnegie. And it was just Mm -hmm. used as an input for the process of learning how to write. But I happened to read a lot about how he thought capitalism was broken at the end. The system does a very good job of delivering resources to the hands that are capable of using it effectively for society. 
but doesn't do a very good job of then motivating those people to use it. And that stuck with me. That has become something kind of deeply ingrained in my mindset. The sense that wealth is actually responsibility. It's not uh, just privilege. How does that how does that line up with what you do next? Where do you go from here? You're, you've been at some zero 14 years. I know you're still building on it layer by layer. Even the stats you shared on this, you got to update your LinkedIn site, by the way. Uh, <laughs> 16,000 members there are 20 on the pod. Um, what's, uh, what's the future hold for you? Um, well, you know, putting aside my personal life, which, which you know, I think for me, um, uh, you know, like just, building my family like that that's very important to me and, and um you know i want to make sure that i do a good job in that department for my kids but um professionally you know honestly uh i'd like to teach more mm. um or, or or at some point i'd like to to kind of you know impart um you know at least whatever wisdom i've, I've picked up to kind of that next generation you know to, i think it's fun and it's it's one of the more rewarding things i've done in the past um, I, I think practically speaking, I'll probably be doing less over time, day-to-day -day operating and more outright investing. Um, just, uh, I think that's sort of a natural evolution that a lot of entrepreneurs kind of experience where, you know, the first couple decades of entrepreneurship, it's a slog, yeah. you, you know, it's a, it's a lot of phone calls. It's a lot of, um, you know, you're just like selling all the time right and 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 you know just fire drills dealing with hiring like on a very direct day-to-day -day basis um and i think if you're good at that uh and you you know you're lucky enough to have an exit or two or what you know if you can kind of make that work um i think doing more just direct investing is 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 the is a more efficient way to like leverage whatever platform it is you've built um so i suspect i'll be doing doing more of that um and i think the the advisory stuff like the stuff i'm doing at gemini is is great and and um it, you know hopefully that's something i can do more of as well you know maybe just kind of take on more more kind of board roles um get a little bit more diverse industry exposure divya thank you for being on it's awesome to have you um really had fun chatting mark thanks for thanks for thanks for having me join all right. Awesome to have Divya on. I love his stories. Hey, thank you for listening to this. Uh, this is where I ask you to help out. So if you're interested, please click buttons, share, like, five stars, whatever. Uh, if you could share with friends, that's also super cool. Appreciate that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, you can subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any of the major podcast platforms. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis. 